Well, this morning marks our fourth Advent celebration here at Veritas Church. And then tomorrow evening, as you know, we'll be meeting at 6.30 p.m. for our Christmas Eve service. That service lasts only about 45 minutes. I uh, hope to see all of you there. This morning, our theme is peace. And the sermon text includes our congregational reading for this month. The sermon text is Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. And it is one of the clearest prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. This passage from Isaiah 9. It is speaking about the birth of Jesus 700 years before Jesus is born. And as we'll see in this prophecy, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And he will and has usher in peace that has no end. It is one of the titles of Jesus. He's called the Prince of Peace. Because he ushers in a peace, according to Isaiah 9, that has no end. A never-ending peace. So that peace, whatever it is... That will be the subject of this morning's sermon. We've really saved the best for last this Advent. It is the greatest blessing. Peace with God is the greatest blessing. It is foundational to every other blessing. And as I preach this sermon, and as we listen, remember that this is God's Word. This is God's Word, and in God's Word alone, we learn who we are. More importantly, we learn who God is. And when God's Word is preached, and it is supported by God and the Holy Spirit, it always results in our good and God's glory. So we should pray before I preach this sermon. Will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, fill our minds with truth, fill our hearts with love for you, for others, and move our wills, we pray, to trust you, to honor you, and to obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you are free to take with you if you don't own a Bible, you'll find today's text on page 369. Here's a definition of peace. A state in which there is no war or a war has ended. That's a definition of peace. A a state... In other words, a particular condition that one finds himself in. That's a state, like state of mind or state of being. A state in which there is no war. That's peace. A state in which maybe there was a war, but a war has ended. No more war. That's the definition of peace. Now... Let me read you two verses from the Bible. The first is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and it says, And you, 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And the other is Romans 5.10. And it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Reconciled. Reconciled. Three times in those two verses. Christians were once alienated from God, Colossians 1 says. Christians were once hostile toward God, that verse in Colossians says. And according to Romans 5.10, Christians were enemies of God. In other words, we were, remember the definition of peace, we were in a state of war. Before I was a Christian, I was in a state of war. I was alienated from God. I was hostile toward God. Maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. I was an enemy of God. But now, through Jesus, we are in a state in which there is no war. We are in a state where the war has ended. There is peace with God. The Christian is at peace with God. In other words, for the Christian, he or she is in a state in which there is no war. There was a war, but the war has ended and there's no longer hostility or enmity or strife, war between the Christian and God. So it's funny, funny in a sad way, I mean, that usually when when people talk about being at peace with God, they mean they are at peace with God. They once thought of God as an enemy, but now they are at peace with God. They changed their mind. They let God off the hook. They have forgiven God, you might even hear people say. They are in a state where they are at peace with God. So they say things like, I've made my peace with God. But that peace is not true. What is needed is not manward peace. Peace from me declared to God. What is needed is Godward peace. What is needed is peace from God toward me. I'm the one that needs to be forgiven, not God. I'm the one that needs to be made a friend of God, not the other way around. God is not the offender. We are. God does not need forgiveness. We do. So here is the most important question. It is the most important question. And I mean that literally. The most important question in the universe is, are you at peace with God? 
are you this morning? Is God at peace with you? Are you forgiven? Are you saved? Is God at peace with you? The Bible teaches this. You and I will not be at peace with God and God will not be at peace with us apart from Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9. He came to usher in peace. He came to win the war. So speaking of Isaiah 9, let's, let's go there now. Isaiah chapter 9, and I'll start reading in verse 2. Again, if you're using one of our church Bibles, it's on page 369. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So this is talking about people then and now who are walking and dwelling are the words used in spiritual darkness. Not physical darkness, but spiritual darkness. They do not know God. That is to be in spiritual darkness. They do not know God. They do not love God. They are at war with God. That is to be in spiritual darkness. And Isaiah is speaking about light breaking through that spiritual darkness. He's talking about the future now as he writes 700 years before Jesus was born. If you notice, he's talking about the future as if it had already happened. Then he's talking about people like you and me in spiritual darkness, not knowing God, not understanding God, not loving God. And then, at some point, a light breaks through. And of course, the light that breaks through, we're going to see, is Jesus. This is what is symbolized by Christmas lights, or what should be symbolized by Christmas lights. Jesus came, and He is the light of the world. Some of you do an Advent wreath. We do an Advent wreath, and once a week, we light the candles on the Advent wreath. We turn off the lights in the room to represent the spiritual darkness, the gloom into which the light of Christ has shown. And you light the candle and there's light. It's a symbol of what Isaiah is talking about. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Here's what the light does. This is what he's describing. This is what the light that broke through the darkness, this is what the light was going to do. Increased its joy. They, those who were walking in darkness, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So, with this light comes rejoicing and gladness and an increase of joy. That's what the light does. And now verse 4, look with me. It begins with this word for, and so everything that follows, for, everything that follows is an explanation of this joy-bringing, darkness-dispelling 
light. Here's an explanation of it. 4, verse 4. The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is what the light does. It has broken the oppressor, the burden. How? As on the day of Midian. It's like that. It's like what happened on the day of Midian. Well, that's referring to Judges chapter 7. One of the best stories in the Bible. You remember the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7? Gideon's going to go out. God has selected him. And he doesn't think that he has what it takes because he doesn't have what it takes. And God selects him to go and lead God's people against the Midianites who are oppressing God's people. And Gideon says, we can't do it. There's way more of them than there are of us. This would be an impossible victory. And so do you remember what God does? He starts whittling down his army. Which is an odd strategy. He starts whittling down his army. God's up to something. He's going to prove to Gideon that if he wins this war, it's because of God and not himself. So Gideon's freaking out. And God keeps whittling down his army until the odds are, check this out, 450 to 1. 450 to 1. That means every one of God's people has to take out 450 guys. It's like, a, you know what happened. God rescued his people. God delivered his people. So he puts that, and Isaiah puts that in their mind right now. This is the kind of rescue we're talking about. This is the kind of deliverance we're, we're talking about. Four, verse five, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, I'm going to read that again. Now, I want you to think about this. This is describing a battlefield. This is describing warriors. What's going to happen? Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. I think that means the war will be over. The war will be over. Why? Verse 6. And here's what we've been reading this month together. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Not some powerful prominent military leader not some warrior that you might expect that's going to be this light breaking through that's going to win the war that's going to end the war that's going to rescue God's people that's going to deliver God's people no what are we told a child is going to be born a baby is going to be born a son is going to be given to us. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We could go on and on about all these titles that are given to Jesus. Prince of Peace, that speaks to our theme today. That's explained in the next verse. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So the peace that this child, this son is going to bring, that this light breaking through is going to bring, of that peace, there's going to be no end. It's an everlasting, eternal peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So that's Isaiah writing to a discouraged band of God's people. 700 years, think about that length of time, 700 years before Jesus is born. And he's writing to encourage them. A light is going to break through. There's going to be a victory. A wonderful counselor is going to come. A mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and He will win the war and usher in a peace of which there will be no end. So Isaiah writes that around 700 B.C. Now listen to Hebrews chapter 1. So now I'm jumping to the New Testament. So we've got Isaiah 9 in our minds. In Hebrews chapter 1, I want you to listen and I want to show you without a doubt that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 9. So here's what the author of Hebrews says, very first four verses of his book, which is just one long sentence in the original Greek. Here's what he said, long ago, and we just read about long ago. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Isaiah, whom we just read. Long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, and these last days were the days that the author of Hebrews was writing in. The last days are the days that we're still in. They are the days until Jesus returns. So he's saying that was then and this is now. Long ago, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Isaiah, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Author of Hebrews Almost 800 years later. Long ago, God spoke through the prophets like Isaiah. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. whom we know is Jesus. Whom he appointed. And now listen, he goes on to describe Jesus. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of his gl the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the words of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That was packed. Jesus is the heir of all things. That means everything belongs to him. He owns everything. All of creation, including you and me. All of creation belongs to him. He created the world, we're told. We can go back to Genesis 1 and read about God speaking the world into existence, but it was the Son of God that was the active agent of creation. He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That is, He is light breaking through the darkness. He's the the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. How could could Jesus be an exact imprint of God's nature? Because He is God. Isaiah 9, He will be called Mighty God. He made purification for sins. We'll talk more about that. That's the rescue. He made purification for sins. That's why He came. And now, where is Jesus now? We're told in Hebrews 1.4. And now he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is superior even to angels. Here's what that teaches us. The birth of Christ. And that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. Not Christmas magic. You don't need a Christmas miracle. Not Christmas for Christmas' sake, for the holiday's sake. We're celebrating, at least Christians, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And the birth of Jesus Christ marks the beginning of God's fulfillment of His promise in Isaiah chapter 9 to rescue desperate sinners. That's Christmas. The birth of Jesus marks the beginning of God making good on His promise in Isaiah chapter 9 to give a child, to give a son who would be light breaking through the darkness, who would win the war and make it possible for human beings like you and me to have peace with God. The question is, how does Jesus do that? How does he rescue desperate sinners? And the author of Hebrews said, by making purification of sins. And that is actually a a very condensed version of the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is the good news. The word gospel literally means good news. The good news of the gospel. The good news is not that the good news is not Christmas. That's the beginning of the good news. We celebrate the good news more at when? At Easter. We start celebrating now because he had to be born in order to die. So we're celebrating the birth of Jesus at Christmas, but we're celebrating the birth of Jesus sort of in the shadow of the cross. The good news is the gospel. That Jesus came, this child was given to do something. 
to rescue us and to save us. How? By making purification of sins. So let me explain that briefly. Let me give the gospel the good news. It should always be in the forefront of our minds, Christians. However you do it, however you do it, keep the gospel in your mind and heart all the time. And there's many ways that you can declare the gospel. You can do it in a, a sentence. You can do it in four points. You can do it in the way of the master. You can do it in uh, six points. You can do the Romans road. There's all different ways that you can declare the truth of the gospel. I think I just about in every sermon summarize the gospel in one sentence. And that is that Jesus came, lived, suffered, and died in the place of sinners like you and me, so that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to God or so that we could have peace with God. That is the gospel. But let me give it to you now in five verses. Let me give you five verses from the Bible that I hope will make clear what it is that Jesus came and accomplished and then how all of us should respond to that. Because it demands a response. It's not just news. It is the best news. So the first verse is Revelation 4.11. If you want to write these down and look them up later, I'd encourage you. Revelation 4.11 begins with God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. In other words, God is the loving ruler of the world. God made the entire world. This includes you. You and I would not be here if it was not for God. God created the entire world. And he made us human beings as the pinnacle of his creation, and he gave us a job to do. He made us to rule the world under him. He made us to honor him. He made us to obey him. He made us to love him. He made us to be like him. Next verse is Romans 3 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's not so good for your self-esteem to read Romans 3, 10 through 12. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. Here's what this verse teaches, and so many others. We have all rejected God as our ruler. Isaiah 53 puts it this way, each has gone his own way. So God is the ruler, but we've rejected God as ruler. Don't we run our lives our own way? We don't want to go God's way. Certainly not all the time, certainly not perfectly. We want to go our own way. 
And what happens is we often make a mess of ourselves. When we do things the way we want to do them instead of the way that God wants us to do them, we often, don't we? We make a mess of ourselves. We make a mess of the world. And the Bible calls that rebellion, that going our own way, sin. The next verse is Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's getting heavier as we work through these verses. God is the ruler of all things. I have rejected him as ruler and he's going to judge me for that. Hebrews 9.27 God is not going to let us rebel forever. God's punishment for our rebellion is death first and judgment. If we didn't sin, we wouldn't die. If we weren't in rebellion, we wouldn't die. It is the result of our sin. It is the result of going our own way. It's a curse going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We reject God as ruler, and now we will die, and we will face judgment. And the sentence that God passes against us is entirely just. One of the reasons that the sentence God passes is just is because He gives us exactly what we ask for. In rebelling against God, we are saying to God, go away. I don't need you. I don't want you, God, telling me what to do. Leave me alone. And in the end, that is precisely what God will do. His judgment on rebels is to withdraw from them and to cut them off from himself permanently. If you live away from God here, you will live away from God eternally, is what the Bible teaches. Since God is the source of all life and all good things, to be cut off from Him means death and hell. And so God's judgment against rebels like you and me is an everlasting death. And there's not a more frightening reality. There's not a more frightening truth. Nothing horrifying that we could come up with could ever touch that. To be completely and eternally cut off from the only source of all that is good. Darkness. 1 Peter 3.18 is the next verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh. But made alive in the spirit. This is the heart of the gospel now. This is where in this, in this best of all news, it, it takes a sharp turn. 
God is not just just. God is merciful. God is merciful. 1 Peter 3.18 teaches us. He is so merciful that he sent his son into the world. Isaiah 9, Hebrews 1. God is so merciful that he sent his son into the world to live perfectly in the place of his people. To live the perfect life that I'm supposed to live. To live that life perfectly and then to die. Not deserving death like I deserve death. But to die in the place of of sinners in the place of his people to take the punishment not for his rebellion but to take the punishment for my rebellion for your rebellion this is God making a way for you to be reconciled to him without just winking at your sin sweeping it under the carpet for magically forgetting about it but dealing with it and the way God deals with it is by how merciful is this? By letting you and I off the hook and punishing His own Son on the cross. This is why the cross was as terrible as it was. As awful as it was. Because it was the sin of the world being punished by God the Father. And so again, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once, that's the cross, for sins. It was the righteous for the unrighteous. He was the righteous and you and I were the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. The reason that he might bring us to God. That's peace. That's reconciliation. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And the last verse, 1 Peter 1.3. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So not only did Jesus die, but He was then resurrected. God raised Jesus back to life. You know, that's what we celebrate every Sunday. Every Sunday is a celebration on the day, marking the day of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, why is the resurrection so important? Why is, is Jesus being raised back to life so important? Well, simply put, it means that he conquered death. To conquer death is to die and live again, not for a while, but to die and live again forever. Never to die again. That's conquering death. So the resurrection means that Jesus went in the ring with death and he beat death. He conquered death, which means that he can give that conquering of death, that life to any and all he pleases to give it to. Which means there is a way for you and I to be rescued from sin. To be delivered from sin. To one day still die because of our sin. But to live forever with God in heaven. That's the Christian hope. So how does that happen for us? 
How will we live? Well, we go back to that first question. Are you at peace with God today? Is God at peace with you today? Does this gospel that I just preached mean that everyone will be saved? And the answer is no. It does not teach. Some will go their own way and keep going their own way. Do you know, do you know that you are a desperate sinner before God this morning? I mean, we're all good compared to somebody else. So we can play that game and I can pretend I'm a good person because I can always find somebody who's worse than me. And you can do the same thing. But that's not the standard. The standard is not to, to look out across humanity and come up with how good you are. The standard is God. And God has made you to obey Him perfectly and to love Him and to honor Him and to worship Him. And in fact, when you do that, that's when you will be most joyful, most satisfied, most content. He's made you, He's built you to follow Him, which is why you won't ultimately be satisfied with anything else. But we go our own way. We go our own way. I don't obey God perfectly. I don't honor Him perfectly. I don't worship Him perfectly. I'm still tempted to go my own way. Do I recognize that I'm a desperate sinner? That I fail the test? I'm no way good enough to get to heaven on my own. I don't belong there. I'm desperate. That's the first step. I have to acknowledge that. I have to know my greatest need. And that is to be at peace with God. To not be at war with Him. To have the war ended. Will you reject God and run your life your own way from this day forward? There's only two choices to make. And you will either live for yourself or you will live for God. There's no in-between. God makes this clear. So you will either run your own life, your own way, which will be running from God, or will you submit to Jesus? And will you rely on His death and His resurrection for peace with God? Will you trust Him? Will you not rely on yourself and your own good works, your own beliefs, or your own religion? But will you trust Jesus? In other words, will you believe this gospel? Will you believe this good news? You see how if you believe this good news, not just say you believe this good news, but if you really believe this good news, it will change you. It will change everything. You can't believe this good news and be the same. You can't believe this good news and willingly, happily go your own way. You can't believe this good news and enjoy other things more than you enjoy and love God. You can't believe these things and willingly choose to disobey God over and over again. You can't believe these things and live like that. 
to really believe this gospel that, yes, that is who Jesus is, that is what he came to do. He has saved me from my sins, so now my life is his, and I live to love and honor and serve him. That's the call of the gospel. And so the birth of Christ, or Christmas, what this is all about, Christmas again marks the beginning of God's fulfillment of His promise to bring peace to desperate sinners like you and me. Believe that good news this morning. Believe that good news this morning. Trust Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Honor Him, love Him, serve Him. One of the ways here, every Sunday, following every sermon, that this church responds is by taking communion together. Especially this time of year, we have people visiting with us, so as I do every week, let me explain what it is that we're doing. I'll start with a scripture in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in communion, here's what's happening. We are remembering the sacrificial death of Jesus in our place. We are proclaiming the sacrificial death of Jesus this morning. So who remembers that and who proclaims that? Christians remember that. And Christians proclaim that. So here is who communion is for this morning and who it's not for. If you're here today and you are a Christian, what I mean by that is if you are a baptized believer, you have formally placed your faith in Christ as a Christian and been baptized as a Christian, and you are part of this church or another local church, there's other good churches, that faithfully proclaim this gospel, then you're welcome to take communion with us. If that doesn't describe you, then we would say hold off and wait and trust Christ first, put your faith in Christ first, be baptized as a Christian first, because in a few minutes you will see, you should see those who have professed their faith in Christ and committed their lives to Him. Not perfectly, but they've committed their lives to Him. So we'll have leaders up in the front to serve, and we ask that you would empty into the center aisle and come forward and we'll give you the bread and the juice and then hold on to the bread and juice, return to your seat, and then we're all going to take it together as a family. Let's pray again. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we're turning our attention now to the sacrificial death of your son. And we pray that you would be glorified as we remember and proclaim His sacrifice in our place 
so that we could be reconciled to you. And we pray this in his name. Amen.